if that song don't get you, you're asleep. So, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be beginning a brand new series this evening. Um, Last week, we finished a series called Uproot. And so this, uh, this, uh, this week, we will be beginning a brand new series called Replant. Uh, before we begin this evening, though, uh, before we get into the message, um, I think together we would all like to say a special congratulations to Notre Dame's fencing uh, team that are uh, national champions, right? <laughs> national champion fencers. And uh, specifically, as many of you were watching this afternoon live, our very own Stephanie Deschner is the national champion in women's foil. So I have here their 2018 national championship shirt. Uh, she has already assured me that I will be receiving the new one. And I can't wait to, uh, to support that. The, uh, the second thing that I want to throw out there On the back table back there, you will see a stack of these beautiful invitations, okay? These are invitations for our Easter service next week, okay? Next Sunday, believe it or not, Easter Sunday. And so like I said before, Easter Sunday is one of the weeks of the year where it is very likely that if you invite someone to come with you, they will probably say yes. And This is something you can hand them with the information about our service to put uh, in their hands so that they have a tangible reminder. Uh, For those of you that are watching online, this graphic will also be shared on social media. So you can tag people, you can send it in private messages to people, spam people like crazy with it uh, over the next six days uh, so that next week we can celebrate uh, all together. So hopefully you, uh, you are in Matthew chapter 12. Um, we begin tonight a brand new series called Replant. Now let's start with the end of the series in mind. The point of this particular series is to help you be a person who is cultivating and growing, producing the fruit of the Spirit. In the book of Galatians We read that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So what we did in the last series was we talked about removing the negative, right? The last series was uh, repentance of sin, taking things that are not supposed to be in our hearts and uprooting them. By the grace of God, we are removing those things from our lives. Whether it be big, terrible lies, hidden secrets, or maybe it was just bad habits. Or or maybe, uh, for some, it was the fact that you've never come to a place where you've fully surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ. You've never come to a place where you've said, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. And if you haven't taken that step, whatever it might be, Uh, a a, a repenting of a particular sin or giving your life to Jesus, if you haven't taken that step, I I want you to know that it's not too late, okay? Just because we're moving on from that series doesn't mean we're moving on from the gospel. And so I encourage you uh, to continue to uh, consider that. And perhaps this series hopefully will inspire you in that direction. 
Because as we describe in this series what it looks like to have a fruitful life, perhaps you will say, that's the kind of person I want to be. Perhaps when you see that picture of what it looks like to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you might say, I want to be like that. We're also going to take uh, at least one week in this series to look specifically at what it looks like if you try to just plant good seed in your heart without first uprooting sin through repentance. And so these are the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about. Um, I will say this evening that uh, I I learned a lesson uh, just a few minutes before church started And that is something I should have learned in college. Always have a backup. Always, always, always have a backup. You know, hit save a thousand times when you're working on a project because it's always at the very last moment when you're about to send it in or render the project or whatever that something goes wrong and everything is haywire. Um, Just a few minutes before the service started, my sermon notes deleted. And it's like five minutes till service, and I'm like, oh no, my sermon is gone. So I have a rough draft um, that is not a full manuscript, and so if I'm a bit choppy tonight, that's why. But imagine you go on a trip, and you are gone for a few weeks, a vacation. None of us know what a, a vacation of several weeks looks like, probably, but imagine if you did go on a a trip for a few weeks. And then you got home and found that there were people living in your house that were not supposed to be there at all. This is exactly what happened to a man named Roland Hawkins, a, a resident of El Paso, Colorado, in September of 2017. Knowing that he was going to be gone for a few weeks, he was taking a, a biking trip, which sounds wonderful. He was taking a trip, and so he listed his, his uh, house on a, on a home rental site, you know, like an Airbnb type of site. And it was only supposed to be rented out for a week or two, and he was going to be gone longer than that. His, his house was supposed to be vacant when he returned home. It certainly wasn't supposed to be occupied by a group of homeless people. So... Much to his surprise, he comes home and finds that his house has all these people living in it. What would you do in that situation? If your answer is, kick them out, I have bad news for you. It's actually not that easy. This defies logic, okay? The the way that these laws are written defies logic, But according to the law in most of the states in the United States, you are not legally allowed to just force squatters to leave your property. Legally, in most states, when someone enters your home, if your home is unoccupied, the only way to get them out is to take them to court. By law, a squatter cannot be charged on the spot with home invasion. Because home invasion is defined legally as a person forcefully entering an occupied private dwelling with intent to commit a violent crime against the occupants inside 
such as robbery, assault, kidnapping, etc. So, if the home is unoccupied, they are technically not invading. Whether they can be charged with burglary depends on the circumstances. In Roland Hawkins' case, the homeless squatters that were there claimed that the previous tenant had invited them in. And so in this case, it becomes their word versus Roland Hawkins' word. And the police have to start an investigation. During that investigation, the squatters cannot be forced to leave. These people had been inside of this house for well over a week and had moved in all of their things. And so until the investigation determined whose word was correct, these squatters could not be charged with trespassing either. And if the homeowner tries to forcibly remove the squatters, either by violence or by threat of violence, somehow in this country, it is the homeowner who can be charged with a crime. The homeowner can't even wait until the squatters leave uh, to go do whatever squatters do. And, and, and if they leave, he can't go in and change the locks and, and make sure that they don't come back in. Because then that would be considered an illegal eviction because it's not court ordered. A judge has to order the squatters to leave. And so, Roland Hawkins had to begin a legal process that, that starts with giving the squatters at least a three-day written notice that they have to leave. Then, if they refused to leave, which they did, Roland had to file an unlawful detainer with the local court. At that point, the court would schedule a hearing and scheduling a hearing takes about two to three weeks, normally. And so he had to wait three weeks for the judge to see the case. Then the judge makes his ruling. And the judge ruled in Roland Hawkins' favor. If the judge rules in favor of the homeowner, then they receive a writ of restitution. And it's at that point that the homeowner can get the sheriffs involved. And depending on how busy the sheriff's department is, it's not necessarily immediate. In Roland Hawkins' case, it took two weeks for the sheriff to have time to issue an eviction. And so at long last, after weeks, Roland Hawkins finally got his house back. Came home from his trip and went in the house and described it as if someone took a homeless camp from under a bridge and put it on the inside of his house. He said that the, the house was an absolute disaster on the inside. And he, of course, was liable for that mess. He said that every time he would go to his house and knock on the door, someone different would answer the door. As many as eight different people... Adults and children were living in this house. At one point, one of the squatters even taunted him. He told them, you have to leave. And they said, I've already talked to the police. We have at least two weeks before we're legally required to be out of here. And uh, we're going to mess up your house. I cannot imagine 
how I would feel in that situation. Now, this isn't entirely hypothetical to us. We actually witnessed firsthand a, a squatter setting up in our neighbor's house. Um, so we had this neighbor named Mr. Billy, and, and his house is right on the other side of our yard. And we knew that Mr. Billy had moved into a nursing home uh, facility and that he had unfortunately died. And so his house was sitting vacant. And so one of his, uh, his kids came over and talked to us about the property and, and said, hey, if anybody ever shows up, just let us know. Well, one day I'm in the kitchen, I'm washing some dishes, and I look over, and there is what I will describe as a drug van parked at my neighbor's house. And this guy gets out, and he starts walking laps around the house. And so, obviously, I am the guy who's in his house looking through the blinds like, babe, come over here, something's going on at our neighbor's house. We see him take a, a package off the front porch and he's knocking on the door and of course no one's going to answer and so then he and this lady that he's with get back in their drug van and they leave I call the police like hey uh, I just saw someone steal a package off of my neighbor's porch and the police officer says um, so are you a victim of a crime and I'm like, I personally am not. I'm telling you, I watched this happen next door. Uh, do you want the license plate number of the van? And the officer says, um, I'm going to connect you to our front desk. And I'm like, okay. So I get connected to the front desk. And I begin to tell this story. And the person stops me and says, are, are you the victim of this crime or someone else? And I'm like, well, somebody else my neighbor. And they said, okay, well, we're going to give you um, a link to fill out a Crime Stoppers tip. And I'm like, why? Uh, go online and fill that out, and, and, and that'll be taken care of from there. I'm like, okay. So I go to this link, and I, I fill out this Crime Stoppers report. After a couple of days, I'm like, uh, I don't understand what's happening. So I try to follow up on the Crime Stoppers website, and there's nothing there to follow up. So I call the police station again, and I'm like, I'm confused about this process. What is this Crime Stoppers thing? And they explain to me, oh, well, that's somewhere that you can go to fill out an anonymous tip if you have not been the victim of a crime. And I'm like, well, what happens to those tips? Well, then they go to the police station. And I'm like, but I'm calling the police station directly. Why do I have to use Crime Stoppers? Well, because it wasn't, you know, a, a crime against you. And I'm like, so does anyone follow up against this or what? Like, wh what's the next step? Well, the next step is an investigation. And I'm like, well, do you want any of the information that I tried to upload to Crime Stoppers? Well, you can send it to Crime Stoppers and they'll send it to us. And I'm like... Why don't I just give it to you now? I wish I could have time to tell you the whole story. This saga took weeks, okay? Meanwhile, this guy is squatting in the house next door. Um, fun fact, we end up buying that house a little bit later on. Uh, essentially, the family that owned it gave it to us. And so we have been inside the house. And I assure you, it looks a lot like Roland Hawkins' house after the squatters came through. 
Now, why am I talking about squatters? The reason why is because what we're going to be discussing is the fact that repentance, if it is not followed with filling a heart with righteousness, leaves an unoccupied heart. And an unoccupied heart is ripe for squatters. Various sins will come in and fill that vacuum. It is not enough to simply remove sin and not replace it with righteousness. If we just remove sin, we create another opening to be filled by some other sin. And this is what we're going to read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 50. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table in the back, and the words will be behind me on the screen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 50. Jesus speaking says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So, what exactly is happening here? Well, if we flipped back uh, one page, perhaps it's on the same page in your Bible. For for me, it's earlier on uh, in chapter 12 on the previous page. Beginning in verse 22, we find that this story begins with Jesus casting a demon out of a demon-oppressed man. It says, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. And the man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So, Jesus performs this miracle. This man is brought to him who is possessed by a demon, and because of this demon possession, um, he cannot see, uh, he cannot speak. And so, when Jesus heals him, the people around marvel. But then the Pharisees respond to this by saying, oh, well, this is not the son of David. This is an act of the devil himself. They accuse Jesus of being uh, an authority over demons because he himself is a demon. Jesus responds to them and says, hey, listen, that doesn't make any sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it will fall. It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. And so he begins to talk about um, uh, speaking against the Son of Man. And so the context of this passage is that Jesus has, has dispossessed a, a, a demon-oppressed man and then is squaring off 
against the Pharisees. As we read through the Gospels, what we find is that the Pharisees are the people that oppose Jesus most often. And Jesus' harshest words for anyone was always against the Pharisees. And one of the reasons why is because, as we will see later on in this uh, text, the Pharisees were enemies of God, according to Jesus, because they were leading people astray by teaching them this system of legalism and self-righteousness. And so in that context, Jesus begins to tell this story about an unclean spirit who was taken out of a person But then what happens is that the spirit leaves and nothing fills that person. And so it says in verse 43 that the unclean spirit goes out, passes through waterless places seeking rest and finds none. Then the spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came. So the house is the person and the spirit has been taken out. It doesn't tell us how. Perhaps it is because of a behavior modification. This is what the Pharisees taught. They taught the people legalism. This is the things that you do. These are the things that you check off the list in order to be right with God. And so this this unclean spirit is removed. But then nothing is put there in its place. And so the spirit says, I'll return to my house. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. It finds the house vacant. And sets up as a squatter. And it doesn't come by itself. It says it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they squat there. And then the last state of that person is worse than the first. So he says it's even worse when you behavior modify. And and, and you open up your heart and you remove some type of sin. But then you don't replace it with anything. Then what's going to happen is the last state will be worse than the first. So if you're taking notes, here is point number one. Repenting without replacing results in relapsing. Repenting without replacing results in relapsing. The main idea here that I want you to see is that the Christian life is not a matter of emptying one's life of sins. It is a matter of filling one's life with righteousness. And as one fills their life with righteousness, those sins are displaced. And the sins must be removed in order for one's life to be filled with righteousness. But removing that sin is just the first step. We, we cannot stop there. Too often we view our sanctification as a matter of trying harder, right? We view the Christian life as a matter of, I got to try harder, I need to do better to eliminate failure. I I need to work harder to do better, to earn more of God's favor. But that's not what it's supposed to be. Sanctification is a matter of filling our hearts with the gospel. So keep your finger here in Matthew chapter 12. And and I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul gives us very clear direction about this very thing. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will put then also you will appear with him in glory. Verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And this is what our last series was about, right? Put to death what is earthly in you. Uproot what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. You must get rid of them. You must uproot anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And, here's the key, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So, there is in this passage, this motif of repentance and replacing. Okay, This term, put to death, put to death therefore, put off remove. That's exactly what we've been talking about in the Uproot series. We look at these things like immorality and malice and hatred and slander, all these sins, and we're commanded to remove them, get rid of them, take them out, surrender them to Jesus. But then he doesn't stop there. He says that after that, you have to then put on, and that's the replacing. You get rid of the old, and then you put on the new. Turn now uh, to a very similar passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality Greedy to, practice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth uh, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the, the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it is very clear, according to the Apostle Paul, that we cannot just simply stop doing one thing. We cannot just look at a sin in our lives, an addiction, a habit, a secret. We can't just look at it and go, okay, I need to get rid of that. What we have to do is put on the righteousness of Christ. We have to then seek the opposite of that thing. Paul made it very clear in that passage in Ephesians that we don't just stop the corrupting talk. We replace it with talk that builds other people up. The thief doesn't just stop stealing, he starts working in order to start giving. If all we do is repent without replace, it will leave an emptiness in our hearts that will be filled with sins far worse than what was there before. Or we'll just go back to the same thing that we did before. I don't know about you, But in my life, there have been things that have plagued me, sins that I for so long couldn't get rid of. And so often I would try to just stop. I I, I know that it's wrong. I got to stop. I know that I can't be doing this. I got to remove this from my life. And for a while I would. For a while I, I would no longer be doing that thing. But eventually I would fall back into it. Because all I did was I created a void and I didn't fill it with righteousness. I didn't fill it with the love of Christ. And so then the squatters came back and set up and I went right back into sin. That's why repenting without replacing results in relapsing. The journey of sanctification in Jesus cannot just be a removal of bad. It must be a filling of the good. So here is uh, an illustration that you can use uh, for yourself. I I considered doing it up here, but I didn't want to make a mess. Here's something you can do at home to give a visual. Those of you that have children at home, here's something you can do with them. Take a cup and fill it with dirty water, right? Go outside, fill it in a mud puddle, whatever. I mean, dirty, nasty water and, and, and fill it in a cup. What will happen if you take that cup and just pour it out? You'll have an empty cup that's still dirty. So by pouring that water out, the inside of that cup is still dirty. It's it's a void and still filthy. But instead, do this. Take that dirty cup and then take a large pitcher of clean water and slowly pour that clean water into that cup. Keep pouring and keep pouring and keep pouring. All that stuff that's in the cup will come out. And it will wash out. And as that thing overflows, as, it, as the water keeps filling and filling and filling, all that dirt comes out. And eventually what you have in that cup is a clean cup filled with clean water. We can't just get rid of the old. We have to fill with the new. We have to pursue the righteousness of Jesus Christ with absolutely everything. Because if all we do is just try to remove the bad, all we're doing is trying to modify our behavior. And a behavior modification will not last. We cannot just uproot. We must also 
replant. Okay? So here's point number two. Religion without relationship results in self-righteousness. Religion without relationship results in self-righteousness. You guys know that um, I'm not always so pithy with my points. (laughs) You know, alliteration doesn't always happen. But then sometimes it does. (laughs) So, religion without relationship results in self-righteousness. Here's the thing. It is also possible, it's also possible that ridding yourself of any type of sin actually will result in something much worse replacing it, and that is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Remember the people that Jesus is talking to in this passage in Matthew chapter 12. He's talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the people that thought that they were right with God. They believed themselves to be closer to God than anyone else. They, after all, were the teachers of the law. They were the religious leaders. They were the religious elite. They were the super Christians. Okay, They were the people that everyone in Israel tried to model their lives after. They were the ultimate example of what it looks like to be a child of God, or so they all thought. But that was not the opinion of Jesus. Jesus, himself being God, addressed the Pharisees and told them that they were not the ultimate examples of what it looks like to be a child of God. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 23, um, Jesus uses some pretty harsh language um, when he is addressing the Pharisees. So Matthew chapter 23, uh, beginning in... Well, see, now this isn't right. This is one of those places where I'm like, ah, my notes were deleted. Now I have to find it. Give me one second. (laughs) You know what? My notes weren't right, uh, weren't wrong. I was looking at Matthew chapter 22 in my Bible. Oh, man, some days, man. Matthew chapter 23. It is correct. It's right here. Here we go. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you travel against, uh, across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In this chapter, Jesus speaks seven woes against the Pharisees. And this is not mincing words at all. Far from being the ultimate example of what it looks like to be a child of God, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, You are children of hell. You are children of your father, the devil. 
Okay, imagine Jesus walking into the temple, okay, the religious center of the world, looking at the people that everyone thinks are the most righteous people on earth, and he looks straight at them and says, you are sons of hell. You are sons of the devil. Imagine the rippling shock in the crowd, right? Imagine the gasps. Imagine the reaction of the Pharisees who were like, how dare you? How dare you come in here and call us that? But what Jesus said to the Pharisees is that you try so hard to convert other people, and when you do, not only are you preventing them from coming to know the truth about God, you're making your your proselyte, your, your, your convert, twice as much a son of hell as you. So with that in mind, Knowing that this is who he's talking to in Matthew chapter 12 in in this story of, uh, of the unclean spirit. Jesus is calling the Pharisees sons of the devil and their converts twice as bad because what they were trying to do is replace the righteousness of God with righteousness of their own. They were self righteous. Now, They were very moral people, okay? Very moral. These are not evil people in the sense that we think of evil people, right? These are not the guys who are selling drugs or murdering or visiting brothels. These are guys who are in church doing the godly thing. They're moral people, and yet Jesus calls them sons of hell. Why? would Jesus say that it's worse to be moral? Because someone who is in sin, someone who is unrighteous, yet is aware of their need for God's grace, is much closer to salvation than someone who believes themselves to be totally fine without God. There's another uh, picture in scripture where Jesus describes two people praying in the temple. One is a sinner. One knows that he does not deserve to be in God's presence. And he is before God on his face with tears running down his cheeks saying, Oh God, please be merciful to me. The other person in this scene is is a Pharisee. And the Pharisee is also praying. And what the Pharisee is praying is as he's looking at this sinner on the ground, he says, dear God, thank you that I am not like that guy. Thank you that I am not sinful like that guy. Thank you that I was born into your kingdom and that I'm pursuing you with all that I am. Thank you that I am not him. And then Jesus says, of these two, who do you think is going to enter the kingdom of God? Not the Pharisee. It is the man who falls on his knees begging for God's grace. What Jesus is saying is that someone who already believes themselves to be righteous is even under more control of Satan than someone who thinks they've already earned God's favor. Someone who believes that they have earned the favor of God through their righteousness is worse off than someone who is what we would consider far away. Sometimes a moral person is far worse off than an immoral 
person. Now you might obviously ask, well, how is being moral a bad thing? Isn't being moral a good thing? And in the right context, yes, being moral is a good thing. But what most people don't understand is that Christianity is not about being moral. Our faith, fundamentally, is not about being a good person. Many people look at Christianity as being a strict moral code that you have to follow. And if you follow it well enough, you will earn the favor of God. But that is not what our faith is based on. Christianity is about, as Jesus said, loving the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself as a result of that love for God. And so the virtues of Christianity flow from the veneration of Christianity. The virtues, in other words, the, the, the rules that we follow, flow out of the veneration of Christianity. It flows out of the love that we have for the Lord. We don't follow rules in order for God to love us. We follow those things because he already does. We have a relationship of love with him, and this is how we live as a result in order to honor the God that we love. Now, people who are not Christians might say, you shouldn't need a threat of a God in order to be a good person, right? Being a good person is what everyone is supposed to be. It might be hard to understand why it is bad to be good without God. And here again, it is important to to remember the religious context, that we're talking about the Pharisees, who were enemies of Jesus precisely because of the way that they were leading other people to follow empty religion. An empty religion leads people away from God, not toward him. Empty religion always leads people away from God. The Pharisees were deceiving people into thinking that following the rules of religion would make them righteous. People who wanted, legitimately were seeking to be right with God, were being shown the wrong path. That's why Jesus tells them that their converts were becoming twice as much a son of hell as they were. They were being shown the wrong God. That is the key. The Pharisees were showing people the wrong God. They were being shown a God whose love for us depends on how well we perform. They were being shown a God whose love for us is based on how well we follow the rules, on how how well we uphold this strict moral code, on how well we enforce that moral code on other people. But guys, that's not the real God. The real God doesn't love us based on how well we follow his rules. The real God just loves us and invites us to surrender. The real God loves us no matter what we do. And he invites us into a life where we will thrive in doing what is best for us. So is it bad to be a good person who isn't trying to be right with God? You know, maybe you're saying, well, I don't really have any intention of being right with God. Is it bad for me to be a good person? 
Well, no, but also kind of yes. <laughs> no, it isn't bad to be a moral person. It isn't bad to treat other people with respect or to be kind or to follow the golden rule or any of those things. Being an upstanding member of society is good for everyone, right? But when someone sees being good as the chief good, well, at that point, they're missing the mark. When someone sees being good as the chief good, that is missing the mark. How many of you would like $100 cash? If I were to hand you $100 cash, right? Pretty much everybody, okay? If you didn't raise your hand, I don't believe you. Having 100 bucks is awesome. But is having a trillion dollars better? How many of you would rather me give you a trillion dollars than $100? Absolutely. It's not that it's bad to have $100. But if you are trading $100 for a trillion dollars, that is a terrible move, right? It is a terrible, terrible trade that no one would make. But when a person loses sight of the truth that we are eternal beings and their goal becomes simply to be good for 70 years and in doing so, they lose out on the eternal joy of heaven. They've traded $100 for a trillion. Is it bad to have 100? No, it's not bad. But if you turn down a trillion because what you wanted was a hundred, I think we'd all question that move. The point is, the heart of the gospel is not be moral. The heart of the gospel is not be moral. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus, in his love, has rescued you from sin and offers you eternal joy. After hearing a whole series on repentance, it is possible to come away from that with the conclusion that you need to clean up your act, live a better life, live a more righteous life, and in doing so, you'll be right with God. But that is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not behavior modification. It is repentance of sin and it is filling the heart with the love and the presence of Jesus. Look again with me at Matthew chapter 12 in in the second part of the text that we read at the very beginning. So after Jesus tells this story about an unclean spirit going out and bringing back seven more, it says that in verse 46... While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus saying here? He's not throwing his own family under the bus. That's, that's not what's happening. What he is saying is that a relationship with him is more than just a physical relationship. 
he says that truly to be a part of the family of God, in order to be related to Jesus, you must do the will of the Father. What then is the will of the Father? Well, Jesus explained it in John chapter 6, verse 40, where he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus says, The will of the Father is to love me, his Son. The will of the Father is to look to me for your salvation. The will of the Father is to rely on me for your righteousness. And now then what we have is not just religion without relationship, which results in self-righteousness. Now we have religion that is based on a relationship and is imputed righteousness. We have the righteousness of Jesus if we love Jesus. The message of the gospel is not do better. The message of the gospel is trust in Jesus. The message of the gospel is not modify your behavior. The message of the gospel is surrender to Jesus and fill your life with him. And when we do that, Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother, my sister, my mother, my cousin. You are my family if you do the will of my Father. So here at the end of this message, what I want to say to you is this. As good as it is to address all of the negative things in your life and be aware of those things and to look at those things and go, this ought not be there. I want you to know that that's only the first step. Recognizing that whatever that is ought not be there is step one. We have to move from step one to step two. We lay those things down before the Father and we replace it with the love of Jesus. We replace it with the righteousness of Christ. We replace it with the way that he desires for us to live, not so that we can earn our way to him, but because we already have his love in our hearts. It begins with surrender and it follows with steps of walking in the Spirit every single day, planting new seeds of righteousness to bear fruit so that one day we might be those people who, are, uh, who have hearts that are filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against those things, there is no law. Otherwise, the squatters will come and they will ruin your house. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this evening. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for calling us not only to repentance, but also to replacing that repentance with righteousness. Not our own righteousness, Lord, your righteousness. God, I pray for any person who is here, who is watching online, who is listening to the podcast at some later date, God, I pray if there's any person who has never surrendered their heart to you, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to that place of giving everything. I pray that you would bring that person to a place where where they recognize that they must give you control of their lives. God, help each one to see that it's not about being a good person. It's about being a person who is in right standing with you.
So Lord, I pray for that surrender. God, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would show us how to fill the house with good things. That you would show us how to fill the house with your love. How to fill the house with your righteous deeds. Lord, that we might be people who bear fruit. Plant those good seeds in our hearts, Father. Call us to repentance and call us to sanctification. God, I pray that these words would sink deep down into our hearts. God, that we would spend the rest of this week considering, praying over, thinking about how we might give this over to you. Lord, as we sing our our closing song, God, I pray that you would quiet our hearts, that we would allow you to convict us, that we'd allow you to encourage us, that we'd allow your spirit to direct us to whatever move of surrender or obedience you desire for each one of us personally. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will uh, end. So, I do hope that you will consider this week everything that was talked about tonight, that it, it won't just stop at the door. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's all be thinking about and praying over how might I not only surrender sin to Jesus, but also invite him to fill my life with his goodness. How, how might I fill my heart with the good things? How might I, how might I take what I've laid down and, and give the Lord the opposite? How might I receive from him the fruit of the Spirit? Uh, I want you to remember on the table in the back, there's a stack of these. Hopefully you have 10 friends that you can give this to. <laughs> Take uh, uh, everything that is back there, okay? I, I want to make sure that, that those things are, are handed out this week. And also do me a favor. When you see this stuff on social media this week, um, share. Not only like it, but share it, okay? Um, I, I want to say a special thank you to Kayla for, for running our social media so incredibly well. Um, and so the algorithm likes us more if we are uh, very, very active. And so whatever you see this week, share it. Tag people in it is even better. Send it personally to people um, so that next week we can fill this place up and, uh, and worship Jesus together. So join me as I close us in prayer. God, thank you so much for this evening. God, thank you for the beginning of a new series. Thank you that this week, Lord, we will be able to consider all of the ways that you lived and died and rose for us. This week, as as we lead up to Easter, God, I I pray that you prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for the message of the gospel for ourselves. And Lord, help us to be bearers of that gospel to every person that we come across. God, I pray specifically that you would lead uh, divine appointments this week. God, that, that there would be unique opportunities for us to share with people, that, that we'd have unique opportunities to invite people. God, that you would prepare those people to be invited, that, that you would work on their hearts this week, that you prepare them for one of our after-churchers to come to them and say, hey, come to church with me on Easter Sunday. God, I pray that next week we will regather here back together, that your gospel will be preached and that lives will be changed. God, thank you for the church that you're building. And God, I pray that we take the message of the gospel out that back door wherever we go. Lord, help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. You are dismissed.
stronger. 